Well, it's good to see your smiling faces. <laughs> I'm assuming you're smiling. Uh, I can see as much smile on your faces for those who are here as those who are online. So uh, it works out pretty well. I am going to share a message with you this morning that I have entitled Missions 101. On mission, doing evangelism, and making disciples is, is kind of the, the, the title I have put to this. And there's a reason of why I have done that. Because many times in the situation that we're in, in our societal uh, struggles, we allow the world around us to determine what our mission is. Uh, we allow the world to dictate how we respond to those things that are going on around us, when in fact, as Christ followers, our mission determines what takes place around us in our society. The mission that we are here for is more important than all the circumstances that we have to deal with in the life in which we're living. We are here for a purpose, and we are here at this time, in this season, for a reason. God has put you here. He didn't put you here 100 years ago or 100 years ahead of this. We are here now. And we are here now to fulfill a mission. And so many times when we're in the struggle and we're in the crisis of, of a society like we are in, uh, we lose sight of what the real mission is that we're here for. It doesn't change. In fact, in some ways it should stimulate us. And so we have to go back to the very fundamental things of our faith. And that's why I titled this Missions 101. It's kind of an entry level uh, uh, focus on missions. And the first part of this will be something very familiar to you, but the rest of it uh, is going to, I hope, uh, enhance what that mission is. In 1889, uh, there was a great rain, a great storm that hit 15 miles north of a town called Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And there was an earthen dam at this place and the dam began to be stressed and as happened in the past message went out to those down below throughout this canyon where Johnstown was that they needed to prepare for evacuation and then ultimately evacuate and there's a whole story around all of this this was one of the great crises of that era but unfortunately when the word went out about this great flood that could happen, those who were responsible to take that message to the people of Johnstown didn't feel it was valid. They did not take the message to the people. They did not begin to evacuate. In fact, they did not evacuate. And ultimately, the dam broke down. The dam water ran down this canyon at up to 40 miles an hour. It was as high with debris as 70 feet. When it hit Johnstown, there's a, a crevice there, kind of an outcropping, and so the water came down at such a high speed that it caused the water to begin to swirl back and build up because it couldn't get, uh, continue on down. 2,200 people died as a result. They were finding bodies 17 years later, after this flood, it was a great crisis. Many resources were given to, to deal with that and to help the people 
that had survived. Entire families were lost as a result. In one account it said this, in the three hours before the dam gave way, three urgent warnings were telegraphed from the town near the lake downriver to Johnstown and points in between and all the way to Pittsburgh. And all three warnings were callously disregarded by those who were responsible to inform others. Had the warnings been taken seriously the, and the word spread abroad and had the hearers heeded the warning, the loss of life would have been a mere fraction of its actual toll, though the material loss would have been virtually the same. Folks, there is a flood coming, but the cry of rebellion has drowned out the voice of truth. Our society is so caught up in the crisis that they're not hearing the gospel message from God's people. Jesus said that he will return one day. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says that God desires that none would perish, but every person would come to faith, to repentance in Jesus Christ. And we remember that verse, but the very next one says this, but the day of the Lord will come. We have a mission, and the mission that we have is to prepare the world and those who are in it for the return of Jesus Christ by taking the good news to those who are lost and without hope in the world, that they might come to know him as Savior and Lord of their life. And so we are on mission, and we are on the very fundamentals of mission. So I'm going to answer a few questions for you this morning that maybe some have. Now, I love the fact that you had a vacation Bible school here. That is a missional outreach. You are doing things here in community as best that you can, I think. But just understand that if all of God's people, if everyone that's associated with this body of believers and the body of believers throughout central New Mexico and New Mexico and even in our country, if we all grasped the importance of this mission, what could happen and what could be done to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So the first question that I want to answer is this, that some may have. Is there a biblical mandate for missions? And the answer is yes. In fact, you've heard this verse many times before. But beginning in verse 18, it says this in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority. If he has all authority and he tells us what we need to do, he gives us the mandate, <clears throat> then we need to do it. And then he goes on and it says this, Therefore go, or as you are going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's God's faithfulness. David Mays said this in an article. He said, and this is where we meet the truly great distortion. 
for the object of disciple is all nations. Jesus did not say to disciple or to disciple your family or disciple whomever happens to be near or disciple the people in your community or disciple the people you like. He said to disciple all nations. That's all peoples, all ethno-linguistic groups. Make disciples cannot be divorced from all nations. It is not fair, not legitimate, not biblical to claim the great commission for your church purpose and neglect the nations. It is to use the scripture like a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. I think that's very clear. We have a mandate. Jesus did not say, if you can fit it into your schedule, go and make disciples. He didn't say if, if it fits within your mindset, if you feel like this is something you might want to do. He didn't say, I'd like you to consider going and make, making disciples. He said, go and make disciples. That is a mandate. Every Christ follower, every born-again believer in Jesus Christ has that mandate. No one can say, well, that doesn't include me. That means the people that are in leadership in the church. That means people who are gifted in that. No, it means every person in Jesus Christ has a mandate and is on mission and will be responsible before God as to how they carry out that mission. We do have a mandate. There are 616,000 people within a three-mile radius of this church. 116,000. You are on mission right here. We used to think missions was outside of our state and outside of our country and in foreign lands. But today, the foreign lands have come here. We have all kinds of people from every background, from almost every nation, from every linguistic group, in fact, in our area. And the question is, are we reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are they part of the mission? We have the mandate to go. We have the mandate to make disciples. Just this week, there was an article in Facts and Trends by a guy named J.T. English, who's uh, the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship in Denver. I want you to hear what he wrote because it really impacted me. And it's something that I think we've been considering for a while, but this is so well stated, I wanted to share it with you. The symptoms of people and students leaving the church or the lack of maturing disciples or decreasing attendance are symptoms that should tell us not that we are too deep, but that we are too trivial. People are leaving not because we have given them too much, but because we have given them far too little. They're leaving the church because we have not given them anything to stay for. We are treating the symptoms of the wrong disease. Deep discipleship is about giving people more Bible, not less. More theology, not less. More spiritual dis disciplines, not less. More gospel, not less. More Christ, not less. People are leaving the church not because we have asked too much of them, but because we have not asked enough of them. We are giving people a shallow and generic spirituality when we need to give them distinctive Christianity. 
We have tried to treat our discipleship disease by appealing to the lowest common denominator, oversimplifying discipleship, and taking the edges off what it means to follow Christ. Put simply, we have settled for shallow, a shallow approach to discipleship, believing that breadth will lead to depth. found that quite interesting because over the last number of years, we have had conversations about how we have lowered the bar rather than raising the bar for those who are Christ followers. We have a mandate beginning in our neighborhood, in our city, in our state, in our nation, in our world. We are to be on mission. And on mission means not only taking the gospel message to those who are lost, but making disciples, not shallow disciples, but true, committed, faithful disciples, obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. That does not happen with the cliff notes of the Bible. It happens with the depth of God's word in the heart of those who are his children. The other question that I want to answer is this. Is there a mission strategy? Is there a mission strategy? And the answer is yes. By the way, these are all going to be yes answers. So if you're taking notes, you can just fill that part in right, right at the beginning. Now, there is a, a syndrome called the restless leg syndrome. I came across this thought a number of years ago, and it's a neurological condition that is characterized by the irresistible urge to move your legs. Now, when I was a little kid in church, uh, if you had restless leg syndrome, it was corrected by pinching. Uh, maybe some of you were able to experience that in your youth or young uh, as children. Uh, some of the symptoms of that are this. Your uh, restless leg symptoms start or become worse when you are resting. Your restless legs, leg syndromes get better when you move your legs. Your restless leg syndromes are worse in the evening, especially when you're lying down. Um, and it also can cause difficulty in falling or staying asleep, which can be one of their chief complaints of the syndrome. The most distinctive or unusual aspect of the condition is that lying down and trying to relax activates the symptoms. Now, some of you might be sitting there uh, this morning or sitting at home, and all of a sudden you're noticing that your legs, legs wiggling. You're, you're moving around a little bit, and you're realizing, well, maybe I have this. Well, don't go there. Uh, just, you know, don't, don't get caught up in it. But I want you to think about another syndrome that I have identified as a spiritually restless syndrome. And the reason I have kind of come upon this is that I really believe that God's people are, are at that point where they're wanting God to work, where they want something to happen. They may not have been involved up to this point. Uh, they're not sure where to go, how to get uh, in, in integrated into a mission or into a ministry. Uh, and they're sitting back and they keep praying and saying, oh Lord, the world's going to pieces. Uh, things are falling apart. How are we going to impact this? God, what are you going to do? And the Holy Spirit is moving in them and they're getting this restlessness and they want to do something. They don't know what to do. But the longer they sit there, the longer they sit in their seat, the longer they sit on the couch, the more restless they become. So let me give you some characteristics of that. 
you have a strong urge to do more in serving Christ, which you're not able to resist. The question is, where's that breaking point? How uncomfortable do you need to get before you commit yourself to get involved? Secondly, your spiritually restless syndromes start or become worse when you're resting, when you are not serving the Lord. Now, I know a number of folks who are involved in ministry and, and they have to kind of get away, kind of recharge, rest in the Lord for a period of time. But they are so anxious at the end of that to get back into the game, to get back into ministry, to get back into serving, to get back into to, to impacting lives. They're, they're just restless to get going again. Unfortunately, for many of God's children, they've become so comfortable sitting and resting, even though there's that sense they need to be doing something that it hasn't gotten to the point where they're ready to give in to it. Your spiritually restless syndromes uh, get better when you're involved in ministry and missions. Listen, the greatest thing you can do as a follower of Christ is to find some place to plug in and to get involved because the more you're serving others, the more God is going to bless you and encourage you and strengthen you, the more you're going to see the validity of your faith at work through the power of the Holy Spirit impacting lives, the greater God's impact will be when we get up and we get going and we get out and we start doing what God has called us to do. There's a strategy, but the strategy is through you, through us, to go out into the world. Bill Hybels, many years ago, called this the holy, the holy discontent. He said, what is the one aspect of this broken world that when you see it, touch it, get near it, you just can't stand? Very likely that firestorm of frustration reflects your holy discontent. A reality so troubling that you are thrust off the couch and into the game. It's during these defining times when your eyes open to the needs surrounding you and your heart hungers to respond that you hear God say, I feel the same way about this problem. Now let's go solve it together. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to sit back and do nothing if you are a true child of the King. The Holy Spirit wants to work in you and through you. And the longer you sit, the longer you get comfortable, uh, the more isolated you become, the more restless the Holy Spirit will make you until finally, at some point, you're ready to give in to the Holy Spirit's leading, the Holy Spirit's urging, and get up and do something about it. Many times, as my pastor, I would have somebody come to me and say, you know, uh, PJ, they used to call me PJ, Pastor John. And um, they say, listen, I, I think we need to have this ministry in our church. And I'd say, oh, really? Okay, great. And uh, I said, why do you think that? And they'd tell me why, why they thought we should have it. And I'd say, so I'm getting the idea then that the Holy Spirit has laid this upon you and your heart, and you're going to lead out in this ministry. And they're, oh, no, 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 I can't do it, but I think we need it. I said, you know what, if, if you can't do it after God has laid it on your heart, then it's not going to get done because he hasn't laid it on my heart. You see, the problem is we see what should be done that everybody else should be doing, but we're really not seeing what should be done that God wants us doing. Part of the mission strategy is that God works in you and through you to accomplish 
what needs to be done that only you can do for him. There's a strategy, certainly. So here's some things I believe that we need to effectively engage uh, the biblical missions in the biblical mission strategy very intentionally. Prayer. Now, prayer is one of those things that, that we all talk about and many of you are involved in, and that is, that is absolutely necessary, and it should be a daily part of every one of our lives. We need prayer for those who are lost throughout the world. As a matter of fact, if you've been keeping up with the news and seeing what's going on in China and some of the other countries right now, the persecution that's taking place for those who are Christ followers, uh, it, it just breaks your heart. Uh, but you understand that these are people who are so committed to follow Jesus Christ that they're making sacrifices that need to be made and suffering the consequences of it. Our sacrifices are the fact that we might get a little uncomfortable if somebody oppresses us in some way with a look or with a word. The second thing is preparation. People need to come together and work together and seek God's guidance in leading to mission mobilization. We have to be not just hearers of the word according to James, but we have to be doers of the word. And listen, we can have different ideas. In fact, the Bible indicates that, that we need to be uh, unified but not have uniformity. We can have unity without uniformity. In other words, we can work together for the sake of the mission and accomplish great things. We don't always have to agree on everything, but we have to work together and we have to be in unity. <clears throat> Planning. Strategic plan to move from being hearers of the word to doers of the word. That's what drives us, that's what helps us work together, that commitment that when God speaks, we will respond. And then participation. Listen, the gospel is relational. Now we can use all the technology, we can spread the Bibles and hundreds of thousands of people have come to know Christ by picking up a Bible in a hotel room. And today there's still some hotels that have them. And they read the scripture. And they come to faith in Jesus Christ. We have the technology through the medium of television and radio and the internet. But the greatest impact we can have, especially locally, is relationally. We've got to take the gospel out and not only proclaim it, but live it. So how do we do that? Let me give you a, a little thing I put together. You don't have a voice without a presence. You don't have a presence without participation. You don't have participation without involvement. You don't have involvement without a holy discontentedness. And you don't have a holy discontentedness until you see people, your community, and your world the way that Jesus sees them. There's a series of things here. We want to make an impact, but we don't want to go to the extent of getting involved. We want to make an impact, but we're not comfortable being around certain groups or of people. We, we want to make an impact, but they're not politically in alignment with us, so we don't want to be a part of them. Folks, Jesus went to those who were sinners in need of a physician. Jesus went to the prostitutes and those others that nobody else would go to. 
we have isolated ourselves in many cases. And the very people we should be going to, the very people we should be impacting, the very people we should be building a relationship with are being left behind because it makes us a little too uncomfortable. You want to make an impact in your city, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your state? Get involved. People don't want to hear from you until they see how you relate to them and how you're going to be involved with them and how you're part of them. We have got to be part of community. What's the strategy? Go. That's the mandate. Tell. Make disciples. Make believers stronger. The gospel is essentially relationship, relational, and we need to get back to that. The next question is this. Are there mission opportunities? Duh. I, I think that's the only thing I can say. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you can drive down the street and not know that there's mission opportunities. Unless, of course, you're driving down the streets that you're comfortable on, where there's no other issues, lots of trees and lots of flowers. Everything's nice and clean cut. You go from point A to point B, back to point A again. But if you get out in our community and in our city and you start going to places you've never been before, you're going to see mission opportunities. Through the Southern Baptist Convention, we have the International Mission Board. We have North American Mission Board. We have the Baptist Convention in New Mexico. We have what I am a part of, the Central Baptist Association. There's bridge building. There's feeding ministries, camp ministries, sports ministry, uh, virtual VBSs. Uh, our church up in the East Mountains did a virtual VBS last month. We had 62 kids online that week doing virtual VBS. We couldn't have fit them in our building, especially under the social distancing thing. There's intentional engagement. There's evangelism training. There's cold call evangelism. There's three fields training, how to share your faith. There's critical response opportunities through hunger ministry and recovery ministry. Now, we've not had to deploy our disaster relief ministries at all this year yet, but there's a possibility for it. And there's all kinds of ways that you can be involved in disaster relief through the Southern Baptist and through the Baptist Convention in New Mexico. There's chaplaincy training. There's mobile kitchen, which I am responsible for. There's mud out, clean up. There's all kinds of things, chainsaw. There's lots of ways to be involved. And listen, those are not things where you just go, you do your task and you walk out. Those are opportunities where you get to relate to people and meet people who are in crisis and pray with people. One of the great things that happens is when our disaster relief folks show up on site as first responders and our chaplains are there and they get to be with people right at the edge of the crisis and pray with them. And many people have come to know Christ as a result. There is one truth that is consistent with discussing missions and evangelism. If you are not sensitive to or searching for mission or evangelism opportunities, you will surely not find them. You must be intentional. The next question, is there a measurement for success? How do you know that things are happening, that God is accomplishing things? First of all, there's the measurement from a Christian perspective. 
In Acts 20, 24, it says, However, I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. In that passage, Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders whom he loved and whom he cherished. Cherished. He had spent three years teaching them and ministering to them and never stopped warning them day and night with tears. As he met with them, he shared his value statement that is based on his relationship with Jesus Christ when he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Too often we see our lives as greater value than the life of a lost person coming to Jesus Christ. In other words, his life, which is temporary on this earth, carries no worth of comparison in comparison to the race and the task he had been given by Jesus Christ. He shares his passion, his desire. If only I may finish the race and complete the task. If you understand that you have a mandate, that you are on mission, you are on task, that you're supposed to be uh, doing what God has called you to do, you're in a race and your goal should be to finish the race, to accomplish the task, to do what God has gifted you to do and called you to do in the context of where he has placed you to live and serve. Paul also said the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. That's really the most important thing. So he's saying the most important thing is his purpose of fulfilling that. And here's the question. Are my values, my passions, and purpose in line with the testifying of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The measurement from a church's perspective. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is really that passage which tells us what we are to be doing. The Apostle Paul again wrote this. He said, I proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or complete in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Notice here, it's we, not they. He says, we proclaim him. We do it corporately. And we do it in unity so that we might present, if you can get the picture, that as we serve and minister and are out on mission, we're following the mandate of God, we're being obedient to him. And as God works in that and through it, people come to faith in Christ. He entrusts their spiritual health to us as individuals and as a church. We disciple them and we do all we can to help them become spiritual leaders in their own right, that God might raise them up and send them out. It's as if we're presenting them to God and saying, you have entrusted them to us we now present them to you as disciples ready to serve ready to go ready to accomplish what you've called them to do in their life that's really how we measure the church's perspective and then there's the measurement of the eternal reality and I love this part Everybody likes to look at Revelation. When I became a new believer, I thought, man, I'm going to read the book of Revelation and find out how it all ends. And I didn't get too far in it when I realized I had no clue what it was telling me about how it was going to end. But there's some parts in here that are important to us. The reality is this in Revelation 5, 9. It says, and they sang a new song. 
You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then in Revelation 7, 9, it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. The ultimate goal is what happens when we get into the kingdom. Because you never know how God is going to work through your testimony and through your life to touch lives for Jesus Christ. God may work in someone's heart to plant a seed that you may never see come to fruition. But they may come to Christ because that seed was planted. Someone else would come along and water. Someone else might come along and harvest. You never know how God is going to use your faithful service and obedience to him. You're being on mission. You're going out with the gospel. You're making disciples. You never will know the impact completely until you get into the kingdom. And then, as we gather around the throne, singing worthy is the lamb from every tribe and nation and people and language. What a joyous, what a joyous time that will be. That ought to be the ultimate goal for us. That's the measurement which we won't truly experience until we get into the kingdom. So we've answered the questions. Is there a need for missions? Yes. Is there a mandate? Yes. Is there a strategy? Yes. Is there opportunity for missions? Yes. Is there a way to measure? Yes. So the question that we have this morning is how do you answer those things for your life individually? The Bible says that Jesus seeks us out. We didn't seek him. And his love is so great that in spite of your sinfulness and no matter what you've done in your life, no matter where you're at in your life, Jesus Christ died for you. He paid the price that was required for your sin. He went to a cross. He was sinless, so he was tempted in every way, just like we are. But he came for a purpose. He came on mission to live this life, God in the flesh, all man, all God, without taking away from either one of those. He lived that sinless life, and he had a mission to get to the cross, to pay the price with his shed blood for our sin. And then he overcame sin and death by rising from the grave the third day, just as had been prophesied. And he says to you, listen, I did this for you, if you will surrender your life to me and put your faith in me and ask me to forgive you of your sins, I will forgive you and you will have everlasting life. But it doesn't end there. That's when you begin to grow as his disciple. That's when you get on mission and start serving and being obedient and fulfilling the purpose that he has put you here for this morning. Be committed to the task. Be obedient to the Lord. Have a passion For those who are lost, serve for the kingdom. You're serving him by serving others. How does God speak to your heart this morning? What do you need to do in response to his word? I'd like us to bow our heads just for a very brief moment before we close. And I'd like you to ask the question, Lord, in response to your word this morning, in response to this challenge, how do I need How do I need to respond to you? What do I need to do to be on mission?
and to be serving you in your kingdom. Take just a, a moment, quiet prayer, and then I'll close this in prayer this morning. Father, each one of us who are your children have been spoken to by your spirit to urge us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to strengthen us in some way. And we cannot walk out of here this morning without some response to you, a response that says, well, I've heard that before, but I'm really not ready to make any change in my life, or a response that says, Father, I, I am convicted because I, am not, I have not been on mission, and I need to be. I just pray that you will touch each of our hearts and help us to respond according to your will. And more than that, I pray for those who have heard this message this morning, that they might recognize their great need for Jesus Christ, because he is going to return one day, and he'll take his children home but he will leave those behind who don't know him. The day of the Lord will come. And it seems, though we do not know for sure, it seems as if that day is drawing closer all the time. Our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in, in some philosophy. Our hope is not in some spiritual thing. It's in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to you except through him. So I pray that maybe there's someone this morning that would ask Jesus to come into their heart. That they could acknowledge their sin, turn from it in their heart. Believe that what he did on the cross was sufficient to pay for their sin. And ask him to forgive them and give them eternal life. Father, I thank you because you love us so much that you don't let us stay where we're at. You move us out of our comfort zone. You challenge us to grow us. Help us to be obedient to that and submissive to it. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.